Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host Ricardo Lopez and today I'm joined by Dr. Greg Caruso. He is Professor of Philosophy at SUNY Corning and Honorary Professor of Philosophy at Macquarie University. He is also the co-director of the Justice Without Retribution Network at the University of Aberdeen School of Law. His research interests include free will, agency and responsibility, both moral and legal, as well as philosophy of mind, cognitive science, neuroethics, moral psychology, criminal law, punishment and public policy. So uh, he has two new books coming out. The first one that we're going to talk the most about today is Just Desserts, written with Daniel Dennett. Uh, just Desserts, Debating Free Will, and the other one is reject, uh, Rejecting Redistributivism, Free Will, Punishment, and Criminal Justice. So, Dr. Caruso, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. Yeah, thank you for having me. Okay. okay, great. So, uh, let's start perhaps with some basics. So, could you tell us first... Uh, Overall, what is your position in regards to free will? Do you believe it exists or not? Yeah, so I'm a free will skeptic. And as a free will skeptic, I argue that who we are and what we do is ultimately the result of factors beyond our control. Um, and because of that, we're never morally responsible in a very particular but pervasive sense, i.e. the sense that would make us truly deserving of praise and blame and punishment and reward. Um, so as a free will skeptic, I deny what I call basic desert moral responsibility. I, I define free will in terms of the control and action that's required for basic desert moral responsibility, i.e. the kind of moral responsibility that would make one truly uh, deserving of praise and blame and punishment and reward in a purely sort of backward-looking sense. Um, that's why I call it basic. Um, and so I argue that agents lack this kind of control and hence we're never morally responsible in this, uh, in this uh, basic sense, this basic dessert sense. Mm -hmm. So would you call yourself a determinist? I'm officially agnostic about the thesis of determinism, so I'm what's called a hard incompatibilist. I maintain that free will, the kind of free will, again, that would be necessary for basic desert moral responsibility, is incompatible with both determinism and indeterminism. And so um, I argue that if determinism is true, we lack free will because agents aren't the appropriate source of their actions. Uh, in a way that would be able to ground this kind of basic desert. But I also argue that indeterminism wouldn't save free will. Um, and so, uh, and there's reasons why, depending on what kind of an account you give and where you place the indeterminism, I would argue that it, uh, at least the leading accounts, fail to preserve the kind of free will that would be necessary. So whether or not determinism is universally the case, I maintain that we would lack free will. Um, and that, that view is uh, slightly different than the historical, what's called hard determinist view. Um, and so uh, people like Dirk Piraboom and I uh, prefer to give it a new name, which is hard incompatibilism. Mm -hmm. So you're saying that the world doesn't need to be deterministic for us to lack free will? 
Yeah, right. So determinism is the thesis, right, that the remote past in combination with the laws of nature entail as only one fixed future. Um, and just traditionally, the problem of free will was understood in terms of how do you reconcile free will with the truth of determinism, if determinism is in fact true. Um, and there were three main views. So maybe that's the best way to get at the traditional problem. The first view was called hard, uh, hard determinism, which was the thesis that determinism is in fact true. The universe is deterministic. The laws of nature are deterministic. And we lack free will, either because uh, determinism is incompatible with the ability to do otherwise, which some people argue is a necessary condition for free will, or determinism is incompatible with agents being the appropriate source of their actions, since the source of the action drains back to these kind of antecedent conditions, factors beyond the control of the agent. Then they were called compatibilists. Compatibilists argue that free will and determinism can be made to reconcile with each other. Um, and there's all different kinds of compatibilist accounts. Some compatibilists argue that what's of relevance is not the truth or falsity of determinism, but whether agents or reasons responsive, i.e. responsive to reasons in a certain kind of way, or whether they approve of their um, own lower order desires, or their actions are reflective of their deep values, or some other set of conditions. But usually, if agents aren't constrained or um, uh, suffering from sort of mental uh, disability um, and have normal capabilities, then the agent would be free regardless. And then libertarians, not to be mistaken with political libertarian, <laughs> uh, metaphysical libertarians argue that um, free will and determinism are incompatible, but they want to save free will, so they reject determinism and posit some form of indeterminist free will. And there are different kinds of libertarian accounts. There are accounts that posit the indeterminism simply at the level of events. Um, and those are, that's called event causal libertarian um, theories. And then there are those that posit indeterminacy at the level of sort of agents that are perceived to be substances and not just events. And they're called event causal libertarians. Um, I'm, so I am a hard incompatibilist in the sense that I agree with the traditional hard, hard determinist view that if determinism is true, we lack free will. Um, but most free will skeptics today are not, strictly speaking, hard determinists because there are uh, indeterminist interpretations of quantum mechanics. And um, now there's a couple of things to be said about that. Um, it's not necessarily the case that determinism has been refuted because there are alternative interpretations of quantum mechanics. There's Bohmian mechanics. There are different ways of conceiving of, of quantum mechanics um, that are consistent with determinism. Plus, the final version of quantum mechanics hasn't really been fully written. Um, but most skeptics want to leave open the possibility that maybe at the micro level, of the universe, level of subatomic particles, maybe there is some fundamental indeterminacy. Um, that said, that may, that may still be um, irrelevant in the sense that at the level of human behavior and the level of normal um, brain activity, um, indeterminacy may be screened out, um, in which case then um, the issues of determinism still, still are at play. 
But there are libertarian accounts that do posit that maybe there's some fundamental indeterminacy at the lowest possible level, and that it could potentially percolate up to the level of neural networks and affect human behavior. But my arguments against those kind of accounts would be that they don't preserve free will any more than determinism does. Because if you posit indeterminacy at sort of the level of events, even if it's um, events that could sort of percolate up to neural networks, um, ultimately what the agent chooses to do would be um, uh, outside the outside the control of the agent, i.e. the agent doesn't have any ability to settle which set of outcomes occurs um, if they're the result of some quantum, you know, flipping of a coin. So agents would be no more in control of indeterminate events than they would be in control of determinate events. And so, um, I mean, there's a lot more to the arguments because you have to go through the different types of accounts, but my argument would be ultimately whether or not the universe is fundamentally you know, causally constructed in a deterministic way or an indeterministic way, um, we will lack free will. Mm -hmm. I understand. But just to make this point clear, to be a, determinism, a determinist, does one have to believe that determinism goes all the way down to subatomic particles? Or could one be a determinist at, for example, a psychological level or a social level. Yeah, example. so sometimes determin like determinism could come in different forms. And um, traditionally what you know people have in mind when they think of kind of universal determinism is that it goes all the way down to the fundamental level. Um, the way it's traditionally understood, as, you know, the, de the thesis of kind of universal determinism is that um, uh, facts about the remote past in conjunction with the laws of nature um, entail there's only one fixed future. Um, and that's how sort of um, Einstein early on saw the universe. That's how uh, Newton's physics seems to conceive of the universe. Um, but now we have a kind of slightly different uh, conception of, of, of what happens at the lowest level. You could um, refine your determinism and adopt something like psychological determinism, which is that um, maybe there's some fundamental indeterminacy somewhere at the lowest level of physics, but that's irrelevant to psychology and at the level of psych psychological uh, motivations, at the level of beliefs and desires and intentions, um, all of our actions are causally determined, psychologically speaking. Um, so that's a, that's a possible view. Um, and I imagine the compatibilist wants to make their view consistent with all of those forms of determinism. Mm -hmm. I understand. So in these discussions surrounding free will, uh, does the concept of luck also come to the table? I mean, does it play any role here? Yes. So for me, I, I've sort of defended two distinct arguments against free will. Yeah. Uh, one is this kind of hard uh, incompatibilist line where the way I get to the hard and compatibilist conclusion is essentially to go through and look at all the major alternative accounts um, and argue that they each fail to preserve the control and action needed for basic dessert, um, but for different reasons, and then argue that free will skepticism is the only rational position that remains standing, and so we should, we should adopt the skeptical perspective. My other line of argument, um, and this is not my, my own, I, I sort of... Uh, uh, defend views that have been previously uh, defended by people like Neil Levy and Galen Strawson. Um, 
is that regardless of 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 the uh, fundamental question about determinism, uh, whether the universe is you know causally determined or not, we would still lack luck because of sorry we would still lack free will because of the pervasiveness of luck. And so this is sometimes referred to as hard luck um, in the sense, again, that luck is incompatible with free will or undermines free will and basic deserve. And there are different kinds of luck that one could discuss. But and people like uh, Thomas Nagel identify four different types of luck. But you could really just simply focus on two. Um, one type of luck is what is called constitutive luck. So constitutive luck is the kind of luck that makes you the person you are, that determines the kind of psychological character that you have, the kind of moral psychology that guides you. Um, and constitutive luck has to do with factors like the lottery of life, right? Um, you know, whether you're born into a rich family or a poor family or into um, um, a uh, wealthy nation or a poor nation, or you're born to an abusive parent or a supportive parent is really a matter of luck. No one has any fundamental uh, control over the initial lottery of life. Um, constitutive luck could also be uh, a byproduct of whether you had an encouraging parent or a teacher that somewhere along the line took you under your wing or supported you and helped make you the kind of person you are. And then there's what's called present luck, luck around the time of action. Now, present luck could include some indeterminacy uh, just prior to action. So that might include some of these issues about quantum mechanics. Um, but it could also just be, uh, present luck could also just refer to the kinds of things like um, what situational features of the environment influenced me at that particular moment of choice. We know, for example, in social psychology, the color of the wall or what kind of music is playing uh, or really small incidental features of the environment around us could have an effect on our deliberations and choices. Present luck could have to do with what kinds of reasons come to you at that particular moment. Does your mind wander or not wander? What kinds of reasons become most salient? Um, in fact, are most heavily in your deliberation. Um, those are all matters of present luck. And then the argument would be that our actions are either subject to constitutive luck or present luck or some combination of the two. And either way, um, uh, we would lack the kind of more responsibility needed uh, for what I'm talking about as basic dessert because luck undermines the control and action that would be required. So if I go back to my main thesis of, of uh, skepticism, I think we can now better understand what, what my thesis is. I, my argument is that who we are and what we do is ultimately the result of factors beyond our control, which we can now say may include determinism, indeterminism, or luck, because those are all factors beyond our control. And because of that, we're never morally responsible in this basic dessert sense. And I personally see um, the hard luck kind of argument and the hard incompatibilist argument as two distinct arguments in that they each would be sufficient to refute free will. And so my, 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 my most recent versions of my argument suggest that defenders of free will have to overcome both sets of challenges. Because if the right hand doesn't get you, the left hand will. Um, and so I think that's a pretty... Um, interesting uh, way of framing it because a lot of defenses of free will will focus on only one or another of these challenges. 
they'll focus only on the challenge of determinism or the only the challenge of indeterminism um, or they'll independently write about the challenge of luck but i think that each of them actually present really significant challenges um, and because of just luck alone i think um, we should conclude that agents uh, aren't deserving in this fundamental or basic sense of um, of uh, praise and blame, punishment, and reward in a non-consequentialist, non-contractualist way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, in your view, how do you deal with? Uh, I mean, it seems that. Uh, if we compare ourselves to other animals, other animals are less behaviorally plastic, behaviorally flexible. And so there are people that say that because of that, we should think of free will as in, a, as in degrees, different degrees of free will. Do, yeah. do you think that that holds any water or, and if well, not, how, how do you, how would you approach that question? Yeah, so so um, I am perfectly okay with acknowledging many of the compatibilist distinctions between um, agents that are reasons responsive and those that lack reasons responsiveness, those that are suffering from psychopathy, or those that are competent adults. I understand and accept the differences between uh, animal control and, and human levels of control. What I would argue, though, is that those kind of distinctions are still not enough to ground uh, basic dessert more responsibility rather we should we should look at them in a different way I mean instead of calling them degrees of uh, freedom or degrees of free will I would say talk about them in terms of degrees of autonomy or degrees of control and I acknowledge that there are different degrees of control or different degrees of autonomy I just don't think that even the most competent version of control is enough to say that agents are truly deserving of these kind of reactive attitudes of praise and blame and moral anger, um, because ultimately their actions are the result of factors beyond their control, even if they have a different type or level of control than say animals do. Um, so I, I think that all of those distinctions have been very helpful and the literature I think has gotten really sophisticated in distinguishing the different types of diminished, diminished capacities agents can have. And I think we got a better understanding of the differences between human cognition and animal cognition. Um, but I think that those are relevant, but relevant in a different place and in a different way than say compatibilists want to make them relevant. They want to make it the key difference for distinguishing between agents that have free will and those that don't. Whereas I think that they are more relevant for determining certain forward-looking uh, considerations. Like we treat agents differently if they're responsive to reasons than if they're not responsive to reasons. Um, and if we get into discussions of punishment and different approaches later, I would argue that those distinctions matter there as well, but they matter in a kind of forward-looking sense rather than in assessing a backward-looking uh, claim of desert. Um, I mean, what I want to reject really is the idea of just desserts, that individuals justly deserve uh, to be treated in some way simply because they perform some action. Um, because I don't think ultimately agents have the kind of control needed to ground what I call basic dessert. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, and where does question, where do questions of free will connect with moral questions? Yeah, for me directly, because I define free will 
as the control and action that's required for basic dessert moral responsibility. So for me, they're inextricably linked. Um, and I think that definition of free will is actually um, a really important one um, because I think um, obviously anyone who wants to write about free will should define what they mean. <laughs> and so I'm very clear about what I mean. And if you don't have that conception of free will in mind, then maybe we're talking past each other, right? Because I only seek to, to deny uh, that agents have a very particular kind of moral responsibility. I should say, uh, let me say a couple of things here. One is my kind of free will skepticism doesn't deny all forms of responsibility. It just rejects what I call basic dessert moral responsibility. Um, I still maintain agents could be causally responsible, right? Just like the cat could be causally responsible for destroying the pillow. Um, or the storm could be causally responsible for destroying the city. Um, I argue that, agent, that uh, agents could still be responsible in um, what's called the attributability sense. That is, we could attribute various characteristics, um, psychological uh, properties to agents, even if they're not fundamentally uh, responsible for making themselves into those agents. I think we could still maintain what's called take charge responsibility or role responsibility. So if you take on the role of throwing a birthday party or organizing a conference, um, that comes with certain types of uh, role responsibilities. You have to invite the guests, you have to organize the event, but that's different than basic dessert. Um, so I'm only rejecting the notion of basic dessert, respons moral responsibility. But second, I would say that it's important to define free will in terms of the control and action that's needed for this kind of responsibility. Because one, I think it's a neutral definition that all parties can agree to. It doesn't presuppose or beg the question or exclude any of the major accounts at the beginning. So if you look at like the scientific literature on free will, a lot of times they start simply by assuming libertarian free will. And then they go very quickly to refuting libertarian free will. Um, but that's because they've already baked into the cake a notion of free will that excludes compatibilism. I think that's unfair. Or I think a compatibilist could be guilty of simply defining free will in terms of reasons responsiveness and then say, look how obvious it is that we're free because they've defined it in a way that kind of defines it into existence. I think we need a neutral definition that still leaves open the question of whether agents have this kind of free will. Secondly, um, I think that it fits with our folk everyday common sense practices. Most people conceive of free will as inextricably linked to issues of moral responsibility, of praiseworthiness and blameworthiness. In, in fact, the criminal law assumes agents are free in a certain fundamental sense and uses that to ground certain notions about responsibility. Um, if it turns out we're not free, it has practical implications, right? And then third, I would say it keeps the issue grounded in things that are of major significance. If you define free will in some rarefied way that's abstracted from all of our practical concerns, I'm not sure what really is of interest, what's left really for the problem to solve. Um, so I want to problematize the issue of free will in a way that matters. Um, and so I think that there are new, and, and lastly, I would say if, if you reject this notion of free will, um, then I, I find it hard to see what's of real significance in the debate. 
I, you know, I, you want to make it the case that the individual views are defending something controversial. But if you define free will, as say the compatibilist does, um, that, that simply what's required are agents are responsive to reasons in certain kinds of ways, let's say. Um, none of us deny agents have that. So that seems to me a, a relatively uncontroversial claim. I think what you need to say is that agents having that kind of reasons responsiveness makes them accessible or open them up to uh, reactive attitudes of blame and resentment and indignation and grounds and justifies practices like retributivism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's what makes the thesis controversial and debatable. So I, uh, that's how I define it. And I keep it linked very closely, in fact, inseparable, I think, from the issue of at least the basic desert moral responsibility, not these other senses. Yeah, it's interesting because I've had Corey Clark on the show oh. and she's done some work on experimental philosophy surrounding free will and degrees of freedom. And um, uh, it seems that the way people think about free will is that they attribute a higher degree of free will to people they want to praise or yeah. blame. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I love Corey's work, uh, by the way. Um, yeah, so I actually, so I think that's further support for defining free will in the way that I'm defining it, because, um, well, let me just say some of her findings, right? I mean, some of what her work has shown is that um, people fundamentally want to blame wrongdoing and yeah. the desire to punish or the desire to blame actually seems to be coming first and then it's like the cart is before the horse um beliefs about free will are adjusted in accordance to the degree to which we want to blame or punish individuals which is um i think nietzsche actually was the first to kind of speculate that this was the causal arrow this was the causal direction um and now we have sort of empirical support for this kind of a thesis. And that's exactly different than what the compatibilist would have us believe. The compatibilist would have us believe that the way things proceed is we first look at an individual, we assess their capacities, we see whether they have normal sort of reasons, responsive capacities, whether they're suffering from some internal constraints or whether they're, they're acceptable to meet uh, what's called moderate reasons, responsiveness, et cetera, et cetera. And then we assess the degree of blame or punishment in accordance with their responsibility, the degree that, in which they're responsible. Well, that all sounds nice and ideal, but that doesn't seem to be what people actually do. What seems to be the case is that when you do some wrong act, I have this strong strike back emotion, this strong desire to blame or punish you. And um, I then assess the degree of free will that I'm willing to, to uh, attribute to you to justify essentially my already uh, existing desire to punish you. Um, we also find there's asymmetries there's asymmetric biases. So like when you do a wrong act, um, I attribute to you more free will because I really want to punish you um, or blame you for your wrong act. If I do something um, wrong, I do say the same kind of act that you do, um, I find excusing conditions. I, I, I attribute it to situational factors. I say, well, anyone in that situation would have done the same thing. And I sort of mitigate my responsibility to reduce my blameworthiness. But I don't do that for you. I trump up your free will 
so as to be able to justify blaming and punishing you. When you do a praiseworthy act, I diminish your free will by saying, well, every, anyone would have done that in that situation. They attributed some sort of situational set of causes. Uh, but when I do a praiseworthy act, I trump up my free will so as to justify the praise I heap upon myself. So there's all of these kinds of um, empirical studies that are revealing that really uh, the card is coming before the horse. It's the desire to punish or the desire to blame that is really driving attributions about free will. Um, and that shows you, A, that the two concepts are linked. But two, I also think it shows you um, some of the dangers of keeping the conception of free will alive versus replacing it with what we were talking about earlier. Talk in terms of degrees of autonomy or degrees of control. Because um, the notion of free will seems to be linked with um, issues of punitiveness. So the more free will we tend to attribute individuals, the more punitive we tend to be, i.e., you know, uh, seek punishments or, just, or justify punishment as a response. Um, if we reduce beliefs in free will, it seems like it do, reduces people's punitiveness. Um, and so I find that kind of excessive punitiveness harmful. I think it leads to a number of, um, uh, in my mind, uh, um, uh, inhumane um, outcomes and also some undesirable outcomes in, in terms of our social policies. Maybe we'll talk about criminal justice later. Um, so, so for me, I think that inadvertently when people keep the idea of free will alive, what they're ultimately doing is keeping the idea of just desserts alive, that individuals justly deserve to be punished and blamed in accordance with, let's say, their wrongdoing. But that keeps things, unfortunately, focused in a kind of myopic way on individual responsibility. Instead of some, what I would think is a much um, better way of looking at individual behavior is to place it in a kind of holistic system where we see that individuals are embedded in causal structures, societal structures, social norms, uh, environmental uh, features, um, and social factors that influence our actions. And because once you begin to look less at individuals, once you get past the, the, the philosophy of blame and shame, we can begin to see individuals um, and their behaviors as causally driven by factors ultimately that um, uh, uh, um, are beyond their control. And then we could address those causal features to help address the poor behaviors. Mm -hmm. And talking about those causal features, even if free will doesn't exist, do people need to believe that it exists to be moral? I don't think so. So um, I've argued in my work, so I'm, a, I'm an optimistic skeptic. I'm optimistic about the practical implications of free will skepticism. And I've kind of systematically in my work tried to go through and make the world safe for free will skepticism by looking at different domains, interpersonal relationships, creativity, morality, and now criminal justice, um, and argue that we can preserve most of what we care about in these individual domains. In terms of morality, I think, um, A, axiological judgments, i.e. judgments of good and bad and right and wrong, well, they seem to remain in place. Uh, we could still say that what Hitler did was wrong, even if we reject free will. So axiological judgments don't seem to be threatened in any kind of way. Um, and I think that... Um, 
we could still justify reacting to Hitler in certain kinds of ways. So I think that there are avenues open for free will skeptics to embrace uh, that deal with bad behavior. And maybe we could talk about this uh, more um, that don't presuppose agents are free in the basic dessert sense, but yet allow us to engage in forms of moral protest. Um, i.e. engage individuals in a kind of what I would, what Dirk Kiraboon calls a kind of conversational model. Um, whereas I ask you, you know, to reflect upon why you behaved in that way, maybe identify a flaw in your own character, maybe uh, through uh, moral ex uh, exchange, we uh, acknowledge that you're going to work at trying to rectify that flaw within your own character moving forward. But in this kind of uh, conversational model of morality, it would be focused on um, future factors. So instead of it being grounded in basic desert, which is purely backward looking and non-consequential, um, the moral exchange would be grounded in three non-desert based uh, desideratum, i.e. future safety, future reconciliation, and future moral formation. We have a stake, let's say, in developing our children into being good moral beings. And so I could engage my daughter in a kind of moral exchange if she performs a bad act and ask her to reflect upon the source of that, uh, that decision and what it says about her own character and then get her to reflect about um, whether that's a character she wants to have and then work toward changing that character. So that'd be a form of kind of moral formation. We also have a, um, an interest in, in, in safety, future safety. So we have um, an interest in uh, engaging in, in, in acts of moral protest when people engage in bad behavior so as to keep society safe. And reconciliation, future reconciliation is also something of importance for us in our interpersonal relationships. So I think we could preserve most of what we care about um, within the realm of morality, even if we um, acknowledge that agents fundamentally are not self-made and are not uh, morally responsible in any basic sense. Um, yet they may still uh, be responsible in these other senses, and we still may be able to engage in certain kind of moral practices, but they um, practices that don't presuppose basic desert. Yeah, and this uh, belief in free will fundamental to our legal systems? Well, I can't say of all you all systems, but yes, I think like in the United States, um, and in my in in my book on rejecting retributivism, I start in the opening chapter to try to explain the relevance of free will to the criminal law, and I cite a number of things from the Supreme Court and other kinds of rulings that the courts have made to show that um, there is a kind of fundamental assumption of free will. There's a controversy as to whether the law presupposes libertarian free will or compatibilist free will, but it does seem to to presuppose that agents are free and hence morally responsible for their own actions. And so if you adopt the skeptical perspective, then it does have a major impact on the criminal law because it reveals that at least one form of, um, one prevalent form of justification of criminal punishment, i.e. what's called retributivism, that would be unjustified. And if we reject retributivism, um, then we have to figure out what kind of alternative uh, models we could replace it with. But the retributive justification of legal punishment in the law presupposes um, that agents have this kind of moral responsibility, i.e. basic desert. So retributivism essentially is the view that um, 
uh, punishment is justified on the grounds that the wrongdoer somehow justly deserves uh, to be punished or to suffer in proportion to their wrongdoing. Um, and that could include everything from pain deprivation all the way up to, say, the death penalty. And unfortunately, the United States still has the, the, the death penalty. But retributivism is grounded in really two major features. One, it's purely backward looking. And two, it presupposes the idea that individuals justly deserve to suffer and therefore need to be given their just deserts. It presupposes exactly the kind of basic dessert that I reject. Um, so to see how it's purely backward looking, I mean, one good example is comes from Immanuel Kant. Kant had this really famous example of a desert island um, where there was a society of individuals, but they've, they've decided collectively to disband their society, dissolve their social contract, let's say, and uh, each spread out around the around the around the globe, right? Um, and they're all going to leave the island, but there's only one remaining prisoner in jail, and it's a murderer. Kant says that the last person before they leave the island would not only be justified in executing that murderer, Kant thinks he would be uh, required or obligated to execute that prisoner before you leave the island. Now, not all retributivists think that you're obligated, but most retributivists would think you're justified in punishing that individual. Even if they don't believe in the death penalty, they still may agree with Kant that you're justified in punishing this wrongdoer before you leave the island. Now note, what would the justification for executing this person be? It's not deterrence. There's no one left to deter. Everyone else is gone. It's not for moral formation. You're killing the person, so they're not going to learn. It's not to keep anyone safe, because there's no one left to keep safe, um, i.e., the justification is purely grounded in what's called retributivism, i.e., the idea that there's somehow some intrinsic good in punishing this wrongdoer simply so they get their just desserts. It serves no forward-looking benefit. Um, and so there are modern retributivists like Michael Moore, and then more moderate retributivists uh, like Mitchell Berman, um, who may have slight differences or important differences among them, but they all still agree that the primary retributive justification isn't grounded in any forward-looking benefit. Um, even if none of those surplus forward-looking goods were ever achieved, they would still think the punishment was justified. So it's purely backward-looking. And I argue that if either the arguments uh, against free will um, that are based on determinism and indeterminism succeed, or the arguments for skepticism based on luck succeed, um, they would fundamentally undermine retributive punishment because they would undermine the idea that individuals justly deserve to be punished in this way, in this retributive or basic desert sense, um, in which case then a major component of our criminal law would turn out to be unjustified. Right. And even if free will doesn't exist and we can't really blame people for their behavior, let's imagine that we would still need to punish them for us to develop, let's say, a moral character, even if we don't have really any control over how our character develops. But uh, if we do those sorts of things, if our societies punish wrongdoers, then we behave uh, better. So yeah, would so that justify 
Okay, yeah. So this is where things get a little bit complicated because, okay. um, yeah, so there are different justifications for punishment. Some of them are purely backward-looking, like the retributivist. Others are forward-looking, as you're suggesting, or consequentialist. Um, so if you ask why punish this individual, one reason could be they deserve it. And that's the retributive justification I just discussed. Another may be, well, we punish them because it'll help deter others or help uh, deter this individual. That's general or special deterrence. Um, there's, uh, it, might, it might make us safer. It may help in the more, you know, future moral formation of the individual. Those are all forward-looking justifications. This is where it gets complicated because in my book, I argue, while those forward-looking justifications are consistent with free will skepticism, so you're right, a free will skeptic could embrace those. I reject them um, because I think they, they suffer from other independent moral concerns. And so instead, I develop something I call the public health quarantine model, which I argue is not only non-retributive, but at least the way I perceive of it is non-punitive. It's not even a form or a justification of punishment. It's an alternative to punishment. So I, I acknowledge, though, that consequentialist accounts or deterrence accounts are consistent with skepticism. Excuse me. And a free will skeptic could embrace them. In fact, many skeptics do. Um, and that's a legitimate um, position to adopt. My concern with deterrence um, as a justification is not that it's inconsistent with, with my skepticism, but that it um, has a number of, of, of different kinds of moral uh, difficulties. One, it seems to be open to using individuals as a means to an end. So this is kind of common concern with just consequentialism in general. Um, so take deterrence um, and consider it in terms of say, three strikes or outlaws in the United States. Three strikes, you're outlaws, i.e. if you get three felonies, you get life in prison, were put in place in the United States largely in the 1980s and 90s, not for retributive reasons, but for consequentialist reasons. They thought this would be a good deterrence, that, i.e. if there was a knowledge and awareness that if you committed three felonies, you go to life for, for you know, you go to prison for life, people would effectively not commit felonies. Um, a, it's been shown that that doesn't actually work that way. But two, it runs into the problem that some individuals get excessively harsh treatments for um, what I would consider relatively minor infractions. So in the book, I, I recount a case from California where this guy goes on a crime spree. I try to describe it in a way where it's not obvious what the, what the crimes are. But on a particular day, September 1st, he goes into his first Walmart and he um, commits his first felony. And three days later, he hits another Walmart uh, 20 miles away in a neighboring county. And then the third uh, encounter occurs a month later. Um, and it ends up that what this guy ultimately did is he stole VHS tapes. Um, we don't even have VHS tapes anymore, but this is 1980s, um, amounting to, I think, about $32 in, in, in property loss. Um, and he ended up getting life in prison in California because um, felonies with a prior conviction, um, three felonies with a prior conviction led to life in prison. Now, a utilitarian or a consequentialist could say, well, look, this seems a, a bit excessive, but if it effectively deters crime, if it effectively deters overall, produces a better societal outcome, 
maybe it's justified. My model would see that form of punishment as excessive, as excessive and unjustified. Second, um, some people worry that deterrence models could open the door for framing innocent people if somehow it were to successfully deter. There were all these other kinds of concerns. I won't go through all of them. But I reject those approaches because I think they have uh, certain kinds of moral concerns that my model avoids. Mm -hmm. And do you think that it's possible for us to have a legal system set in place that is not based on people believing that we have free will? Yeah, so my, that's what the new book is about, essentially, the rejecting retributivism. Um, it's to propose and defend a completely alternative approach. And I call it the public health quarantine model. So it really comprises two parts. The quarantine analogy, which was sort of first introduced by Dirk Piraboom, and then um, the public health framework, which I placed this model within. So I'll start with the quarantine part. Um, the basic idea is something like this. Let's say I get on a plane to come visit you in person, and somewhere along the way I contract Ebola. And when I get um, stopped at the airport, they test me and I test positive for Ebola. Um, well, I've done nothing morally wrong, per se, right? Um, assuming I wasn't somehow you know, responsible for my own contraction of the disease. Um, I don't seem to deserve punishment in any sense. Retribution seems completely misplaced. Um, nonetheless, I think everyone would acknowledge and agree that we would be justified in quarantining me. And the justification for quarantine would be grounded in what I consider the right of self-defense and prevention of harm to others, i.e. we could justify quarantining the person with a communicable disease on the grounds that it's necessary to protect public health, i.e. prevent a pandemic, right, or an outbreak. What I would argue is that we could, we could justify a similar account of incapacitation for seriously dangerous criminals that's analogous to the justification for quarantine, i.e. we could justify incapacitating seriously dangerous criminals like serial killers and child molesters on the grounds that, um, that um, the, on the grounds of the right of self-defense and prevention of harm to others analogous to the justification for quarantine. Um, now, a couple of really important things follow, though, if you embrace this. One, I don't see this as a punitive approach because by no intuitive sense of the notion of punishment do we punish the Ebola patient. We're not punishing them when we deprive them of their liberty. Um, yes, we, we can justify quarantining them, i.e. restricting their liberty, but punishment typically involves more than just a restriction of liberty. It tends to also require some kind of condemnation of the act, a kind of communicative component that condemns the, both the act and the individual. It also seems to involve a notion of intentional harm, that you're intentionally harming the punishee. This is not what's occurring in the quarantine analogy, and by analogy, it's not what would occur on my incapacitation account. Secondly, um, you, it, it, my model, I argue, entails a principle of least restriction, that you have to adopt the least restrictive measure possible that's consistent with protecting public health and safety. So, for example, in the public health arena, we don't quarantine individuals for the common cold. I might sneeze on you and you get sick. Well, I've caused you some harm. 
but we don't deem that level of harm as sufficient to justify quarantine. The burden is usually, um, well, we give a heavy weight to liberty and maintaining liberty. And we acknowledge that restrictions on liberty carry the burden of proof. And we limit cases of, of quarantine to really precise, really restricted cases, i.e. severe cases where the harm reaches a, a, a sufficiently high level. So on my model, um, the vast majority of things we currently incarcerate people for, um, my, I would argue there are less restrictive uh, methods available to us. So for example, when you look at the data, the vast majority of people in uh, prisons in the United States over 50% of them are suffering from a diagnosable mental illness. I would argue the mental health services would be better suited for the vast majority of them. Vast majority of people that are imprisoned in the United States have an underlying addiction problem. Uh, drug treatment options may be a better option than imprisonment for petty crimes due to addiction. Um, I argue that many of the things we uh, incarcerate people for, maybe we should decriminalize. So I have a recent paper out in the journal of uh, uh, the American Journal of, of Bioethics with Brian Earp and a whole bunch of other uh, bioethicists calling for an end on the war on drugs um, and the decriminalization of things like uh, marijuana possession. Um, and so. I think that the that a, a huge percentage of what we incarcerate people for could be dealt with by alternative means, less restrictive than incapacitation. Secondly, I would say that think about the um, Ebola case. Well, the story doesn't end when you quarantine me. You not only do you, you quarantine me, you have a moral duty to then treat me, and then release me the minute I'm no longer a threat to public health. In fact, you lose your justification for continuing to restrict my liberty the minute I'm no longer contagious, right? And so my argument would be that the criminal justice system has to reorient itself to the purpose of rehabilitation and reintegration, that that should be the primary function of the criminal justice system, um, which would be drastically different than the kind of system we have now, which seeks um, a punitive approach. So I've even written in my book about the design of institutions. The current design of prisons in the United States and Australia and the UK um, and other punitive societies, um, they're designed for punitive purposes. They're cold and inhospitable places. They instill a kind of dehumanization. Um, they cage individuals, depriving them of any kind of self-determination or autonomy. They control every aspect of their lives from when they wake up until when they go to bed. And ultimately, that, that, that environment instills a kind of learned helplessness. You're controlling every aspect of that individual's life. Um, and then you release them after 20 years and expect them to be model citizens. But yet they don't have the skills or the ability to know how to function. So I think our, our institutions have to be designed in humane ways that maximize autonomy. I go through all of this in my book. Um, and then let me just, if I could throw in the other aspect. Sure. I think that that's all necessary because I owe you a story of what do I do with serial killers and what do I do with murderers and child molesters? Well, I give you this account of how we could justify incapacitating them that doesn't presuppose free will, doesn't presuppose more responsibility or just desserts or any of that, and yet still allows us to justify on the right of self-defense incapacitation. However, 
I really want to shift the focus away from punishment to prevention and social justice. And this is where the public health part of my model comes in. Um, public health um, in the public health framework has been you know, in place for decades. And um, lots of philosophical work has been done on, uh, on, on developing a public health ethic, a framework for addressing what is often called the social determinants of health. So what public health institutions seek to do is seek to identify what are called the social determinants of health, i.e. what are the things, that, what are the causes that drive poor health outcomes? And what they tend to discover is that it tends to be things like poverty, homelessness, nutrition, education, and all these other factors. And then public health um, institutions prioritize those social determinants, target them, and then adapt best practices for how to address them. And so what I argue is um, that we should adopt a similar public health approach to addressing violence and criminal behavior. And so we should treat violence like a, like, uh, like a public health issue and adopt the same sort of methodology that we've adopted for public health. And in my book, I actually systematically go through and look at thousands of studies to try to establish that the social determinants of criminal behavior are essentially identical to the social determinants of health. In fact, I identify a number of them, poverty, low socioeconomic status, mental health, environmental health, uh, nutrition, education, um, and, and, and factors like that. And so I argue that um, we should replace a, um, a reactive approach to, to criminal behavior with a preventive approach. And instead of adopting simply punitive measures to address crime, we should adopt preventative measures to address the root causes of crime. And that involves, for me, often uh, addressing social inequalities. So the social justice component comes in where, let me give you an example from public health. Look at like, um, women's health issues in India. In poor regions of India, you could look at things like infant mortality rates, the number of children that survive childbirth, or the number of children that die in early ad adolescence. And you might say, well, this is a poor health outcome. Um, and disproportionately, the numbers of deaths are much higher than the West, let's say, and rich democratic nations. And you have to figure out how do we solve this public health crisis? And what you often find is that the only way you could really address the public health crisis is to address certain issues of social justice. Because what usually is underlying these health outcomes are things like women's rights issues. Uh, women don't have reproductive control over their bodies. They don't have access to the same levels of education. Illiteracy is, is extremely high in India and particularly high among women. Um, they don't have access to birth control. They don't have access to stable health care or have education in sex education. And so to successfully address the um, public health issue, you fundamentally have to correct the social injustices, address sexism and underlying structural issues in society. And so I would argue the same is true for criminal behavior that some of the main drivers of criminal behavior are things like wealth inequality, poverty, um, educational inequity. And to address then criminal behavior, if you want criminal justice reform, I argue, you have to simultaneously address 
issues of social justice. Social justice and criminal justice then become much more intertwined because to, um, to uh, address violence and criminal behavior, we have to address things like sexism and racism and economic um, inequality and social biases and structures of access in terms of education and healthcare and housing. Um, so I try to adopt and develop a more holistic approach that shifts us from the myopic focus on individual responsibility to understanding crime more in terms of a structural problem and then addressing that criminal behavior from the root causes. But if you keep the notion of just desserts alive and you keep things myopically focused on free will and, and, and individual responsibility, you tend to put on blinders and think the right approach to crime is to address it on the individual level. But what I would argue is that that ends up leading to excessively punitive approaches that are often ineffective. They don't reduce recidivism or make us safer. Um, and in the end are more inhumane and, and on my philosophical view, unjustified. And so the goal is to shift the focus from that myopic obsession with punishment to a preventative approach that addresses issues of social justice grounded in this kind of public health framework. Right. So just to make this point clearer, uh, let's say that someone does something wrong. According to your model, then we would put that person through some sort of rehabilitation process, for example. Um, Depending on what the wrong act was. I mean, not all bad behavior requires certain types. Sure. Yeah, in, yeah. Yeah, but, but assuming that she's done something that would require her to go through some sort of rehabilitation, would it be mandatory? I mean, would, it, would we force the person to go through that or not? Okay, that's a great question. So, yeah, um, it depends. Okay, so let's say it depends first on what the crime is. Um, and then, it, then we'll determine what kind of measures should be you know, implemented. And then we, after that, determine what times of rehabilitation are most likely to work, right? So let's say it's a murder. Um, well, a violent crime like a murder might, de might require something like incapacitation, right? Because we, you know, obviously prior behavior is a good indication of future behavior. And if we have a good reason for thinking this person remains a threat to, to others, we might have to incapacitate them. Other types of criminal behavior um, may not. Uh, pose that kind of threat to society. And so alternative measures just may be um, uh, better suited. So for example, um, uh, you know, in some cases for petty thieves, I think um, alternative measures like monitoring may be sufficient. Um, or, uh, or um, I've, in fact, in, in, my, in my book, I, I propose in even legal context, um, what's called the whole person uh, a, a approach, or uh, I, I think sometimes in, there was a pilot program in the Bronx called um, um, holistic defense approach. Whereas they look at not only the individual, uh, sorry, not only at what the individual did, the crime, but they also look at the circumstances um, that may have caused the crime. And what they often find is that there's some underlying problem in the individual's life. So in a lot of cases, the underlying causes for the petty crime might be homelessness or might be lack of a job or might be um, lack of transportation to get to work. 
And so a holistic defense approach looks at ways that you could link that individual up to social services such that they could get access to programs that supply them with housing or work training or transportation, in which case then you have alleviated the underlying cause. And that's not a kind of rehabilitation that, you know, you know, is going to involve any kind of massive uh, intervention in the person's life. It, it, essentially, you're giving them the services that would be necessary to help them succeed. And in many, 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 many cases, when you're not talking about psychopathy or violent individual uh, um, individuals, it's often an underlying social issue or educational issue or access issue that might be driving the kinds of problems. And if you could address those, the problem goes away. For the other remaining few that are a real threat to society, then I think you have to look at other things. So I, went, I said earlier that all of the compatibilist distinctions matter, but they matter in a different way. Well, here's where they matter. So if you have an individual who commits a violent act, um, there is an important difference between an agent who is reasons responsive and an agent who's not. There's an important difference between an agent that's suffering from um, paranoid schizophrenia than from an agent who um, is just egoistic, right? Um, in which case the kinds of um, uh, rehabilitation we might seek would be different for those different kinds of agents, right? Because what, what might work for agent whose reasons are responsive, i.e. giving them good reasons for not behaving in that way, appealing to their moral sensibilities, et cetera, et cetera, aren't, isn't going to work for an agent suffering from um, paranoid schizophrenia or psychosis. And so I think then that the types of treatments we might adopt for different types of uh, people would be dependent upon what kind of faculties they have, what was the underlying cause for the behavior in the first place, um, and, you know, I've worked with uh, people who work in forensic psychology, and so many of the people who are currently in prison um, were themselves victimized. I mean, this is the big thing that people don't quite always fully understand, that there isn't this black and white distinction between victim and perpetrator. In most cases, when you look into the lives of people who um, find themselves in prison, you find lives filled with hardship. And the vast majority of those people who become themselves criminals or per offenders were themselves victimized in the past. So there was a study done in Rikers Island on women in Rikers Island. And what they found was 90% of the women they studied were themselves um, victims of abuse. 90% of them, i.e. raped, child molestation, sexual assault from parents, um, domestic violence, and often it goes with co, uh, comorbidity of addiction with their abuser. And, and so the acts they engage in either in retaliation against their abuser or um, at the uh, request of their abuser or um, because of the underlying um, um, experiences of, of abuse in the past. They can't hold a stable job. Uh, by the way, unemployment rates are much higher among victims of, of, of uh, domestic uh, violence, in which case then they may resort to petty crimes to survive because they can't hold a job. Um, obviously, you have to deal with people who are a threat to society, but you also need to recognize, and especially that, that stuff about luck earlier, I think, becomes more obvious here, that 
you know, this person has been unlucky. They have been put in conditions and, 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 and been exposed to experiences that now have placed them in jail. But the experiences that they've gone through are not things they deserve. No one deserves to be sexually assaulted or abused or um, be victimized. And yet they find themselves engaging in criminal acts because of those experiences. And now we punitively come down hard on them, in which case it's just gonna make the, the circumstances worse. So A, you wanna prevent the violence from occurring in the first place, prevention. And then you wanna help women who've been victimized um, learn how to um, deal with that victimization so that they can then get out and successfully be contributing members of society. And that might mean, you know, psychological counseling and continued support upon release, by the way. So I think it all depends on the kind of criminal act and the kind of uh, root causes and the kinds of uh, abilities the agent has as to what types of rehabilitation would be most effective. But would we still have prisons? Would there be any extreme cases where people would be to be would need to be imprisoned? Yeah. So, um, well, let me just say, like, I mean, you look at places like Norway and Denmark and Sweden and certain Scandinavian countries, they don't fully adopt. You know, no one has fully adopted my kind of proposal, but they're closer to this kind of an approach, i.e., um, you know, especially Norway has been, you know, both praise and criticize for the idea that they have prisons that are like, um, you know, um, uh, five-star hotels, you know, and, and have lush condition, you know, environments. And, and, you know, one of them has a million dollar recording studio and they provide work training and, and all of this. One, let me say that 90% um, of prison sentences in Norway, over 90% of them serve less than a year. Mm -hmm. So the vast majority of people in, in these prisons will never serve any time. Uh, and those that do serve time, 90% of them will serve less than a year. Second, you, there's no such thing as life in prison in Norway. The max sentence you can get for any crime is 21 years. But what Norway can do is they can add five-year increments to that sentence if they deem at the end of that 21 years the person is a continued threat to society. But there's still a benefit with, with not having the option of life in prison because by having that option right off the bat of life in prison without the chance of parole is you're essentially admitting from the get-go that um, there's no chance of, of, uh, of um, you know, um, rehabilitating yourself there's no chance there's no second chances there's no um you know chance of redemption and essentially you're foreclosing that at the beginning um and i i don't think that that should ever be the case because each case has to be viewed individually um so very few people um end up serving more than a year and almost you know no one ends up serving life almost everyone who goes into prison will return to society and they have one of the lowest rates of recidivism in the world only 21% of prisoners end up reoffending. Whereas in the United States, we have excessively punitive sentences for extremely long periods of time in extremely harsh conditions, and we have one of the highest rates of recidivism. Um, 80, eight, nearly 80% to 85% of prisoners will be rearrested upon the first five years of release. 85% are gonna go back in. Mm -hmm. And that shows you that, A, what we're doing is ineffective. It's not rehabilitating individuals. And it's B, it's not making us safer. Now, 
I do acknowledge that there will always be the small percentage of cases, maybe like um, violent sociopaths, um, you know, the kind of people that um, end up not feeling any sense of remorse, um, serial killers who meet this profile, and many of the serial killers do have this profile of violent uh, psychopathy. Um, we're having a very, very hard time finding um, methods that effectively work in rehabilitating those kind of violent sociopaths. Um, that doesn't mean we should give up on those kind of individuals, and it doesn't mean other forms of treatment can't work, and it doesn't mean there is a scale of psychopathy, and not everyone who's on the scale is a violent offender, and not every violent offender is going to be a continued threat to society, but there will be that remaining few that just simply can't be rehabilitated. And on my model, then we have to sadly continue to incapacitate them to protect public safety. But we shouldn't, we shouldn't treat them inhumanely and we shouldn't dehumanize them. So on my account, um, individual, the, the sentencing court can restrict one's liberty, just like we could restrict one's liberty in the quarantine case. But on my view, individuals should not lose any other types of rights. You should retain your right to vote. You should retain all your basic human rights. Um, no state has the right to dehumanize you in a way that strips you of, of, your, uh, uh, of those kinds of um, you know, humane treatments um, or rights. And so um, I promote in the book what I call the principle of normality, which I directly borrow from Norway which says, A, the conditions inside prison should resemble the conditions outside prison as much as possible. And hence, you should have humane environments that, um, uh, that focus on rehabilitation and reintegration. Because especially if you care about reducing crime, um, you want the conditions in which the individual is currently residing to resemble the conditions they're going to return to to make that transition as seamless as possible. Whereas our prison conditions and still learned helplessness are so different than the freedom they're going to have when they're released that they don't know how to deal with it and they're not prepared. Second, the principle of normality says that, and this is an official principle in Norway, that the sentencing court has no right to re remove any of the additional rights of the individual other than liberty. You can have liberty limiting restrictions grounded in the right of self-defense on my model, but you can't justify removing their voting rights permanently or uh, you know, dis housing disenfranchisement where they're not eligible for housing upon release. That's just going to increase rates of recidivism. So um, I hope I answered that question, but it's a complicated question. Right. Will your model also include restorative justice? Do you think that that could work in some cases? Yeah, so I, I, I talk about restorative justice uh, in two different places in the book, both when I'm talking about victims' rights and when I'm talking about rehabilitation. And one of the things I argue is that it, I like restorative uh, uh, approaches that, that have developed um, in, in more recent years. I should say some restorative justice models um, might presuppose a certain a, 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 a account of accountability that I might find problematic due to my free will skepticism. But what I argue in the book is that you could, you could eliminate those features of restorative justice and still preserve the majority of what's beneficial 
of the restorative justice process. And I do think it would be helpful. Um, I, I particularly think it's helpful in, in the process of rehabilitation. Um, so you might want to sit down uh, offenders or victims or representatives of the victims with um, offenders to engage in a process that tries to achieve some sort of reconciliation and then focuses on the forward-looking benefits of um, safety and change in the individual and for some closure for the victims or the, fa the family of the victims. I think there could be a lot of benefit in that process as long as it doesn't presuppose any kind of basic dessert, um, which some current versions of the models do, but I do think you could, you could replace the small features that, that of the models that uh, do appeal to those kind of notions with, with ones that don't. And um, so for example, instead of assessing blame, you could assess, uh, you could express um, disappointment or sadness or grief. And the victim could express the effects that this action has had on them. The offender could recognize how much harm they've done. They could focus on what, what features of their own character were responsible for them to engage in such bad behavior, and then acknowledge and attempt to work at those characteristics moving forward um, and, and uh, make an effort through rehabilitation and counseling and, and, and other methods to try to change those underlying aspects of themselves so as to not engage in this kind of behavior in the past, in the, in, in, that they engaged in the past. I think that's all perfectly consistent. Mm -hmm. So one final question, if people lack free will and we know of ways we can sort of manipulate them or nudge them into behaving better, is that a moral thing to do? That's a really complicated, so the ethics of nudge theory is a really, really interesting uh, area. And I don't know if all free will skeptics have to agree on this question, but I would say that I, I tend to favor... Um, yeah, certain, certain types of nudge policies, I think, can be quite effective. Um, and so, for example, I wrote an article recently on reforming the bail system, the cash bail system, which I think um, needs to be reformed because it is um, ultimately creating what are now debtor's jails, people being imprisoned simply for monetary reasons. And it's widening the effects of um, the criminal justice system disproportionately affecting poor communities and black and brown communities. One nudge policy that's been shown to work quite effectively is simply text messaging individuals to remind them of their court date. Um, and, uh, and simple reminders have been actually proven to be quite effective at, at having people show up at the day, their, day of, uh, their, their day of the hearing. Um, that's a simple nudge. Um, that is quite effective. It's not very interventionist. It's not, you know, in my mind, all that morally problematic, and yet has been proven to be quite effective. And other things like, you know, just designing spaces in ways that maximize good choices, I tend to think, um, are are available for us. The more we learn um, how how psychology works. Um, and just to add one thing here, which I find interesting, there was a study done that show that people that have my kind of view on free will, i.e. free will skeptics, are more inclined to support nudge policies. <laughs> so it's a good question that you ask, because it seems that actually um, there is some evidence 
that um, you're op if you're me, if you have this kind of view on free will, you tend to favor nudge policies more than uh, those that don't. But um, I do think there can be some kind of policies that cross a line and that are too um, manipulative. So I think you would have to judge them on a case by case basis. Right. Okay, so we've already covered a lot of ground here today. Um, apart from the books, which are again just desserts, debating free will and reject, rejecting redistributivism, free will punishment and criminal justice, where can people find you on the internet? Yeah, you could uh, follow me on Twitter at, uh, I think it's Greg D. Caruso. Um, is my handle or my website, which is www.greatcaruso.com. You can find all my papers there and links to my books. Okay, great. So, Dr. Caruso, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for taking the time to come on the it's show. It's been a wonderful uh, time conversing with you. Thank you. Hello, everybody. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. My channel is now more than three years old and to keep it sustainable, I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. If you prefer PayPal, you can also find links to it in the description box of this interview. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and supporters, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Pereira Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Ricardo Vladimir, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan V. Selenian Kata, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Eric Alenius, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Voss, Bo Weingard, Rebecca Neuberger Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windegger, Rui Nassi, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas Trumbull, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Colombo, Jorge Pinha, Phil Cavana, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Michael Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andrew, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Yugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Omari Hickson, Fergal Cusson, Evan Bodrenko, Hal Herzog, Nuno Machado, Don Ross, João Alves da Silva, Jonathan Leibrand, Oslem Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Eira, Tom Hummel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Dez Araújo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dmitry Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Rusmani, Charlotte Please, Miran B, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, my producers, Isar Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Stafiniak, Ian Gilligan, Sergio Codriano, Luis Caetano, Tom Vanegdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Guidi, Sardas France, and Niruban Balachandran. And finally, my executive producers, Michel Ruzieski, Rosie, James Pratt, and Matthew Lavender. Thank you for all.